Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 12. Uh, if you're visiting, uh, Melan- is Melanie, right? Melanie, uh, we have been working through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've been working expositionally, uh, but we take a break today for Palm Sunday and next week for Easter. We'll be in John 12, starting in verse 12. And this is God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am... There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, (coughs) if you've been following uh, this news story, the Clive Bundy story, you know what I'm talking about? There's this rancher out in Nevada, and who knows what I'm talking about, the Clive Bundy story. Well, you know, there's this rancher and his cattle have grazed on these lands since the 1800s, and, and uh, the federal government's going, no, that's government land, and you owe uh, money, and, and Clive Bundy's like, I'm not going to pay it to you, I'll pay it to Nevada, but I'm not going to pay it to big government. And suddenly, all within the last week or so, you've got all these people who have bunkers in their yards and, and you know, uh, uh, meals ready to eat and all that stuff heading to Nevada because they've been itching for a good battle against big government for all this time. And in a very short period of time, bang, you've got this electrified situation going on in Nevada where this big crowd has been mobilized and there's this uh, sudden uh, collective opinion. Well, I'm not saying that that has anything to do with Palm Sunday, but what I am saying is um, you can see how um, quickly something can turn into a a big uh, collective uh, uh, opinion. And and that's the case for understanding the events uh, and object of this story in front of us here today, okay? As you know, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and um, I always break away for Christmas, do something at Christmas uh, different than what we've been studying. I always break away at Easter, do something different. But I don't always break away for Palm Sunday. I don't think I've done a Palm Sunday message in a few years, and I just thought I would go ahead and do that today. Um, And one of the things that's been a catalyst for it is 
Easter week. You know, I'm the music guy at your church, and when you're the music guy at the church um, and Easter shows up, you go, oh, you mean a lot of music has to happen. Lots of big, Easter's a big, a high stakes kind of a situation. And so you've got Easter week, you've got Maundy service, uh, uh, Maundy Thursday, which by the way, you should come to the service on Thursday night. You should come. Uh, uh, it's, it's this Thursday night at seven o'clock. It's, uh, it, it takes in, in the consideration the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, the night that he washes disciples' feet, instituted the Lord's Supper, gave a new commandment. It's a very contemplative, reflective time. We take communion together. It's just an hour-long service, but I just, I, I beseech you to come. It's, it, you, it, it's a good for you to come. Anyway, all that to say, in consideration of all that stuff and having to dream up songs and think up stuff and line up people, it's extra music, extra stuff. Um, I've got extra thoughts passing through my mind, you know? I've got, I've got content passing through my mind. And one of the songs I found, actually, Betsy Bryant's going to sing it. I found for her, uh, the lyrics, are, they were, they were uh, translated from Latin like 2,000 years ago, seriously. And uh, they're not very good. Uh, so I rewrote about half the lyrics. And one of, the, one of the things that I wrote, and I was so proud of Betsy, she, she emailed me and she said, I'm not sure that I feel good about singing a song that calls Jesus victim. And indeed, that was one of the lyrics in there. And uh, you'll hear on Thursday night, I changed the word victim to warrior. <laughs> so strongly do I not want to call Jesus victim. Now, listen, um, technically, a victim can be someone who is a sufferer, Right? A victim can be somebody who um, is the injured party or a fatality or the object of damage. So I, I, technically, you could say that Jesus is victim. You could. But in our vernacular, the word victim is very freighted, isn't it? When you, when you hear the word victim, you, you think, oh, helpless. There's, a kind of a, there's kind of an element in the way we say the word victim that changes the idea into somebody that's kind of out of control of their calamity. That's not the Jesus of this book. That's not the Jesus of this story. Rather, uh, this is our big idea today. Jesus came to intentionally die. Let's look at our first sermon point. The king fulfills his destiny. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, there's a ton of framework in that one verse to consider. You've got, uh, first off, a large crowd, right? So, you know, we we need to think, okay, who are those people? Excuse me one second. Uh, Secondly, there's a feast. To what does that refer? What is this feast? Um, Also, it's anchored in a place, Jerusalem, and uh, it's also anchored in a time. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a timeline, the next day, it says in verse 12. So let's talk about that. What is this large crowd? Well, it gives us some indication. Um, if you look at verse 9, you back up a little bit. It says, when the large crowd of Jews, okay, so there's some information there. The large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came and so on. So there's a large crowd of Jewish people. But also, skip ahead to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb... Uh, so now we get it. Um, and um, also in verse 19, the Pharisees say to one another, look, you're gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. So basically, um, you got this uh, two crowds in a sense. You've got 
the crowd that is following Jesus. They, 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 Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. You've got these disciples, these people who are interested in Jesus. They're following him into Jerusalem. But then you've also got this greater crowd. You've got the crowd number one that's, that's uh, Jesus' disciples, but you've got this greater crowd that's moving into Jerusalem, and uh, we can see that from this uh, idea of the feast. What is this feast? Well, it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's another name for the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Passover. Now, uh, you don't have to turn. Let me just jump there real quick. But um, in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to look at it later, um, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, uh, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first year. And, and uh, tell all the congregation, I want you to go ahead and, um, you know, that uh, uh, the Egyptians are held captive, right, by, by Egypt. Excuse me. The Israelites are held captive. I'm, I'm so full of pneumonia right now. I can barely hear myself think. Uh, no kidding. Um, <clears throat> the uh, Israelites are held captive by the Egyptians. God is freeing them. And it's the night before they're freed. And God says, all right, what I want you to do is I want you to take the blood of a lamb and not just any lamb, but a spotless lamb, a perfect little lamb. And I want you to uh, cook it. I want you to eat it. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to put it on the doorposts. And uh, we go, we, we listen to that and we go, ooh, icky blood. That's, that's weird. Ooh, gross. Right. Shed blood. It's disturbing. Life has been spilled out. And um, they're supposed to eat these different things, bitter herbs and so on, unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? Is leaven evil? No. Now, I know Jesus used it as an illustration, the leaven of the Pharisees. That just means that something expands. The point is, it's not that leaven is evil. It is that uh, there's no time. Gonna, there's going to be an exodus. There's no time for the bread to sit on the countertop in your Viking oven and, uh, and expand. Uh, it, it, there's no time for that. So it's unleavened bread. And so there's this celebration that God puts into place. Uh, and he tells them, I want you to um, uh, always remember this day when you came out of slavery, it says in Exodus uh, 13. So uh, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Jewish people are moving into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, where is it? It's in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. And then the time is a little more complicated. You look at uh, verse 12 again. It says, the next day, a large crowd uh, came to the feast and so on. What's, what day is it? Well, there are, there are different views of this, but I think it's the easiest view is to pick it up from chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus comes to Bethlehem where Lazarus was. All right, so six days before the Passover, and then the, the, the storyline picks up in verse 12, I believe, along with some other people, that the next day the large crowd had come to this feast. Now, the point in all that, ladies and gentlemen, is that just in, t- in verse 12, there's this tremendous momentum happening. Right? Jesus, is, he's, he's lived his earthly life in ministry, and now that earthly life in ministry is coming to a head, and things are picking up steam. And there's, there's momentum. You know, Jesus had been saying things like, um, oh, chapter 11, verse um, yeah, 25. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Oh, those are, those are weighty things. I am the resurrection and the life. And uh, there, it's no empty claim, by the way, because Jesus says this to whom? Martha, who is Lazarus' brother, who Jesus raises from the dead. 
Jesus grants him life, just thus proving that he's the resurrection and the life. So, in verse 13 and following of our text today, the people, they take branches of palm trees, they go out to meet him, and they cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, um, all four Gospels record this, what's called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All four Gospels give some story of this, and... um, John, the Gospel of John, deliberately speaks with the greatest economy of words, all right? The smallest amount is said. Uh, for instance, um, you know, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, it talks about getting a, a donkey and a colt. Uh, not here. It's just uh, this, this very compact way of speaking. Um, and uh, the, the writer, too, adds in verse 16, the disciples did not understand this whole thing about uh, a, king, a daughter of Zion, a king of coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. They didn't understand that. But later when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things. Now, I'd like you to show you two, two things. If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118, and I'm going to go to Zechariah. So turn to Psalm 118 and see where John is getting this stuff. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 25. See if this sounds familiar. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, back to our passage. Do you know what Hosanna means? It means save now. So, in Psalm 118, verse 25, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's what's happening. That's what, that's what John's recording here. Now, in Zechariah 9, 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, isn't that cool? Later, the disciples, after Jesus is glorified, they go, hot dog. That's what Jesus did. Well, John records this, this in such an economy of words that it's, it's so full of, of power. John's purpose is, I think, that we see this Jesus fulfilling his destiny. He's not a savior caught up in some political swell where all of a sudden he's really popular and, he, and he's got all these handlers going, come on, Jesus, we need to spread the word. Let's get the word out, Jesus. No. He's focused. He knows what he's doing. He's riding into Jerusalem. He's fulfilling his destiny. Now, if you want an application for your life, I think it's this. Here's the problem. The people are yelling, Hosanna. Save now. Save us. Give success. But they're yelling it at a Jesus that they invented. What they think is happening is, um, hey, Jesus, you're going to come and you're going to do this. You're going to come and you're going to help save us from Rome. You're going to free us from this uh, Roman occupation, and now you're going to be this deliverer in that way. That's a Jesus they were inventing. They were shouting Hosanna at a, at a counterfeit that they made. And a, a modern way of saying that, applying to our world, would be something like, hey, Jesus, here is what you mean to me. 
Here's how I'll classify you, Jesus. I'll say that um, you were this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and you were just a teacher, or you were a good example, or you were this or that. The Bible doesn't give you the opportunity to do that. The Bible deliberately takes that away from you. Uh, This is a proclamation of the saving Christ, ladies and gentlemen. You either ignore him or you receive him. You either hate him or love him, and it's your prerogative to do that. You can hate him or you can love him, but you can't turn him into some spiritual lucky charm. All right, our second point. The king moves toward his hour. I just love this in verse 20. Um, If you look at it, um, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So you've got a crowd of Jews following Jesus at Passover, and you've got some believing Greeks that show up on the scene. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, here's what's so interesting. The answer Jesus gives when they tell him this request, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, so they go, they, they go, hey, Jesus, there's these, these Greeks who have come, these believing Greeks, and uh, they wish to see you. They said, we wish to see Jesus. Here's his answer. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, isn't that amazing? He doesn't go, okay, bring him on. Here I am. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, prior to that, in Jesus' ministry, look at, go, flip, go back to chapter 6 of John. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and uh, in verse 15 of chapter 6, it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king... Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. Uh, so the people come and they go, hey, you're, guess what? You're our guy. And there's this, there's this swell of adoration and affection and respect, and they want to make Jesus king. He withdraws. Why? His hour had not yet come. Flip ahead to chapter 7. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. He says it again uh, at, at the, at, at halfway through verse 8. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And what had happened was, in verse 3, the brothers said to him, Hey, leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. You know, once again, get the word out, Jesus. Spread the news about you. Put a, put a George Chisholm sign in your yard, and, uh, and uh, Jesus too, and let's get the word out. No. My time has not yet come. But here, in this passage, they say we wish to see Jesus. And his answer is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And notice that he just doesn't say the hour has come. Oh, it's time. Let's go. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, let's talk about that Son of Man for a minute. Don't think that means, oh, how sweet. Jesus relates to humankind. Oh, he does. But that's not what he means when he says son of man. If you would keep your finger where you are and turn to Daniel. Uh, Go to Psalms, hang a hard right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. 
Here's where Jesus gets that. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, who's that? Capital letters, God. And was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Jesus is talking about when he calls himself the Son of Man. And notice that his statement doesn't stop there. He just doesn't say the hour has come for the Son of Man to go to Jerusalem. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, God is ready to do this redemptive work. That's what Jesus is saying. It's almost like he's saying, oh, you want to see Jesus, do you? If you want to see Jesus, it doesn't matter what kind of Jesus you think you want. The true Jesus has come on to carry out a divinely ordered event. And it could almost be paraphrased or at least explained this way. The Son of Man is the Son of God. And that's what makes this also stunning. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in our last point in just a second. But to apply this to your life, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think I've told you this before, um, but I, I've got a very unique perspective on a Sunday because I'm behind that pulpit every Sunday leading worship. And then Dr. Young gets up there and he preaches from that spot or, or, John, or Jonathan Todd preaches from there or Randy Carson's or John Otley or a visiting speaker. Anybody that's up there is staring at that, that pulpit. Uh, here I am. Here's the word. And here's the people. And at the top of that wooden pulpit right there, there's, a, there's an engraved plaque. You know what it says? It's very humbling. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I, I look at that a lot. And as I say, I'm humbled by it. it searching person, let me, let me say this to you. Um, you might be thinking, uh, God, if you're real, uh, give me something that will fix what's broken with me. Or on the believing side of this cross, um, you, may, you may be saying, give us truth. You know, give us Give, give we pilgrims something to, to move through this very difficult and challenging life. Well, basically what you're saying is, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus will tell us the way to approach him in our last point here. The king speaks on dying and living. Look at verse 24. He says next, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, um, let me just flip real quickly. In, in, you know, in the book of Mark, which we studied together uh, several years ago, in the book of Mark, Jesus makes a couple of very clear statements. Here's one of them. Um, Mark ten thirty two. Jesus says this. He takes the 12. He began to tell them what was going to happen to him. 
He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, does that sound like Jesus is a helpless victim? Or does that sound like Jesus who knew exactly what he was going to accomplish? He knew exactly what he was going to do, where he was going, how it was going to unfold. And so back to our text, when he says, hey, you know, you plant a seed and basically the seed dies so that it can grow and so that a lot of fruit can be born. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Son of Man is coming to die. I'm going to die alone and many will be blessed by that. And by the way, if you want an application for your life, let's let Jesus make it for you. Look at it. Verse 25. You want in on this? You want in on my redemptive work? Well, here's, here's, the, here's the ticket. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is saying, yes, I am heading to Jerusalem, y'all. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. That means I'm going to be killed and raised from the dead, like I said, and I'm going to be glorified. And if you want a part of my redemptive work, then here's what you have to do. You have to die too. You have, to, you have to die at the foot of the cross. You have to put your faith in what I'm accomplishing on your behalf. You don't bring any of your mojo. You don't bring any of your list of good works. You don't bring any cash. You come without money and you buy Jesus. To close. Um, in the previous couple hundred years um, of Jewish history, there was a, a brutal... Um, uh, Roman ruler, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he outlawed worship at the temple. He basically outlawed uh, the Jewish people the privilege of worshiping Yahweh. And uh, this guy, Mattathias, revolts, and there's this uprising. And uh, then his son, Maccabeus, takes over the revolt of the Maccabees. That's a historical fact. And uh, so he, ta- he takes over, and there's this revolt, and uh, they end up charging and purifying and cleansing the temple, and uh, they find this oil, and so the story goes, they find this oil, and that's, the, you know, Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is. Well, when they come into Jerusalem, you know what the people did? Historians say they took palm branches in victory. Yay! We overthrew Roman rule. Yay, we got the temple back. Now, they took it away again, but they let them keep on worshiping. I mean, Roman, Rome still had a stronghold. But the point is, they're associating these palm branches with this victory, and that's what they're doing with Jesus. He rides into town, and they're whipping out the palm branches, and they're thinking, oh, good. It's finally happened. This is the king that's going to help us here on this earth. And he's going to get rid of Roman rule. We're going to get our land back. We're going to get our national identity. And uh, yay, that's what Jesus is going to do. No. A song you'll hear in just a few minutes 
the words will come at you very quickly. But one of the lines in there says that his, Jesus' realm is not confined to Rome or man. No, no. Rome or land or bone. That's a very potent line. His realm is not confined to Rome. It's not, Jesus just didn't come to overthrow Roman rule. Land, it's not, oh, you're going to get your land back, Israel. Yay! Or bone. Hey, I've got a covenant people. No, no, no. It's greater than the covenant people. It's, it's, it's inclusive. It's, it's for the peoples, as God said to Abraham. It's not confined to land. It's not confined to Roman rule. It's a spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to set up. If you want in on the spiritual kingdom, if you want in on this king who saves people from sin, uh, then you have to believe in what he accomplished on the cross. What he accomplished on the cross was dying in the sinner's place so that the sinner could be moved from a dominion of spiritual slavery to spiritual freedom in Jesus. More on that next week with the Easter story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that the Son of Man is the Son of God and that um, a triune God is the saving God, that you were uh, so interested in uh, us that you intruded upon us and you hunted us down so that you would have us. Uh, Our prayer is that uh, we would be contemplative people this week. We would consider what was accomplished for us uh, in the gospel And we pray that we would be lifted up beyond earthly things to the glory of heaven. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.